I'm very excited to have one of my favorite contemporary scholars on Full Body Frequency. She is none other than Brittany Cooper. Dr. Cooper is Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. She is a Black feminist theorist who specializes in the study of Black women's intellectual history, hip-hop generation feminism, and race and gender representation in popular culture. Cooper has three forthcoming books, including Race Women, Gender, and the Making of a Black Public Intellectual Tradition, which examines the long history of Black women's thought leadership in the U.S., a co-founder of the Crunk Feminist Collective, a popular feminist blog. Dr. Cooper recently appeared in Henry Louis Gates' PBS presentation of Black in America Since MLK and Still I Rise. In addition to frequent appearances on MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes, she currently writes for Cosmopolitan.com. On today's episode of Full Body Frequency, Dr. Brittany Cooper breaks down Donald Trump's presidential win. And while we all have election fatigue at this juncture in U.S. history, it's important to understand how and why he won and how his presidency could potentially impact our daily lives. Cooper breaks down the Electoral College, its function, and what U.S. slavery has to do with it. Cooper grades President Obama, and she also speaks about her work as an on-the-ground activist in Ferguson, Missouri, following the killing of Mike Brown. She explains why voting at both the local and national level is absolutely imperative. Stay tuned. Full Body Frequency. We'll be right back.
Brittany Cooper. Welcome to Full Body Frequency. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's begin with a very broad and sweeping question. What is your worldview on life and what has contributed to your lens on life and work as a professor, social justice activist, and a co-founder of the Crunk Feminist Collective? I think that my fundamental worldview is that I'm a country black girl. I'm from rural northern Louisiana from a working class background. And so I did not ever fully imagine this life for myself. I'm really grateful to get to do the kinds of work that I get to do. And most of my commitments are really about making the world better for black folks and particularly for black women and girls. And always I'm trying to be committed to doing the kind of work academically and politically that resonates with the people who raised me. So it's not just enough for me to try to talk to the ivory tower, try to talk to academics. I'm not overly invested in impressing really smart folk in the academic sense of the word. I really want the kind of approval of working class black folks who put all of this energy and investment to raising a black girl to be able to go out into the world and do her own thing. And so when my work resonates with the people who raised me, then I feel like I'm doing something right. That's wonderful. And that lays a firm foundation for our discussion. So thank you for that. Sure. You're listening to Full Body Frequency. This is Laura Rice, and my guest today is Dr. Brittany Cooper. In addition to her column on race and gender politics at Salon.com, she's a frequent commentator on MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes. Many of us have election and post-election cabinet appointment fatigue. However, given the fact that folks feel ambushed by President-elect Donald Trump's win, give us some analysis on why he won. So I think a few things happened in the election, but I think the primary thing that happened is that Trump's election was the triumph of white supremacy. Uh, it was a triumph of white anger uh, and white racial resentment over the perceived progress of African Americans. I think that that perception is most deeply embodied in the election of uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, and it is in many ways, a sort of fantastical belief in this massive kind of progress, because one of the things we know when we look at the actual political state of black communities, we've seen the rise of the movement for black lives under the Obama presidency, where we have seen what seems to be an increase in forms of police brutality to communities of color. We've seen massive amounts of wage stagnation, really, since the 1970s. We've seen rollbacks in African-American wealth right there at the end of George W. Bush's second term. And so when you look across all measures, black folks are not doing better economically or politically than they were doing 40 years ago, or even in the Reagan era. But because a multiracial coalition elected Barack Obama in 2008 and again in 2012, many white Americans have not been able to psychically deal with the perception that they are being left behind or moved to the side because we have some exceptional black folks who have managed to, to rise to great positions of power. And so you saw that this like combination of white fear and the lack of factual evidence has congealed in this election to, to lead to uh, a Trump presidency. Uh, and it's quite terrifying, frankly. It's very much an attempt to push us back historically. And I say not even uh, to the Reagan era or the Nixon era, but really to push us back to the 18. 80s, the 1890s, the, the moment in history where black folks had had a bit of 
had rights right after the Civil War, and then mm-hmm. white folks in the South got mad, right, mm-hmm. uh, and took those rights away. And so I feel like we're in a moment where we're seeing that kind of thing happen again on a historic scale. So this is very much kind of a, a post-Reconstruction era kind of politics that we're seeing a resurgence. And so I'm just going to just kind of recap that. The hope that we expected to have manifested and the change that we expected to manifest through an Obama presidency was basically just fool's gold. Sure. I mean, look, I think the thing is that we know that President Obama has faced unprecedented levels of Republican obstruction at every turn. Uh, And what's 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 wonderful about the Obama presidency? And look, you know, I've had my criticisms of Obama. I've made those really clear. Um, I think history will be kind to President Obama in the sense that I think despite many disagreements that I have with him. He's been a fairly stellar president, managing to get lots of things done that really do affect the everyday well-being of vulnerable American communities in particular ways, despite having so much obstruction. Sometimes I look at President Obama and I just say, man, I wonder what he could have done if he actually had had a little bit of cooperation, right? And he hadn't sort of had to deal with an eight-year-long white temper tantrum on the right uh, from Republicans about his presidency. And now that temper tantrum has just been ratcheted up to the the highest levels. And this is very much an election that says we don't want black people in power. We don't want people of color in power. White people, the white folks who voted for Trump, right, very much um, are invested in seeing white people at the upper echelons of power. And when we look at who the sort of terrible, horrible people that Trump is a pointing to the cabinet, you know, he's doing stuff that even Republicans of old, right, thumb their noses at, appointing sort of avowed segregationist to cabinet positions, excusing Steve Bannon, who clearly hates anybody that isn't white as his sort of chief strategist. Uh, right. You know, it's, I mean, it's so appalling. It's just so appalling. And it, and, it's, and, it, and it reminds us, you know, I don't know that we knew just how deeply invested uh, many white Americans were uh, in having white people represent visually. And I don't know that we knew just how deep they were, were stunned and shocked by uh, Barack Obama's terms in office. So. Let me just ask you this. So without the assistance of a crystal ball, how could a Trump presidency impact the following? Let's begin with the Supreme Court and the obvious ones. Women's health and wealth, specifically a woman's right to choose, voting rights, the 13th Amendment, immigration, and protecting the interests of American people over big business. For example, the funding of political campaigns and the dismantling of the environment. So let's, let's start there. <laughs> yes, there are just so many places. It's absolutely devastating. When Antonin Scalia died and left a vacancy on the Supreme Court, there was this collective sense among many on the left that maybe we had a shot to kind of turn around the conservative march of the court. And Republicans knew that. So what is happening with the Trump presidency and with the ultra-conservative that will clearly um, send to the court and have no problem getting approved uh, in a Republican Senate uh, is even though we know that white people will not be the racial majority in the country after about the year 2030, what will happen is that these people in positions of power are creating a power structure that will still favor white folks long after they are actually a racial minority in the country. And so that is sort of how apartheid worked in South Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Even though white people weren't the majority race, that they had so much power that they could control people of color. And that's what we're seeing happen. So look, um, if, 
if we get an ultra conservative on the Supreme Court, we could very much see Roe versus Wade overturned and Roe versus Wade says that a woman has the right to make private decisions about her health care with her doctor. And that includes the right to determine with her doctor that it's OK to terminate a pregnancy, um, you know, at a certain up till a certain point of the pregnancy. So we could see that right go away and we could very and, and look, um, Black women have five times more abortions than any other group of women. Um, black women are five times or more like that. I believe that statistic is correct. We use that service disproportionate to any other group. Latina women also use it disproportionate to white women. White women use the service the least of any group. So that is going to create a significant problem for uh, working class uh, black women who, who, need, who often need to use um, pregnancy termination services because of the kind of economic circumstances that Republicans have set up so that it makes it, for many women, it makes it seem untenable to try to raise children in this kind of political environment. So that's one thing. Another thing that's going to happen is we were hoping that we could overturn the Citizens United decision from 2011, which declared that corporations were people and set the gateway for us to have these super PACs that have lots and lots of money to control elections, but where because corporations are private people now, they don't have to report who is giving the money. And so it means that we don't have transparent elections, and it means that you need hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to run successful campaigns at almost every major level. And so that's... That puts the little guy out, and it means that we always have these sort of corporate elites who are in positions of power. And this is one of the ways that you get a Trump presidency. So we have that. We also have, you know, cases coming up about immigration reform. We've seen this court, the Roberts Court, roll back voting rights protections. This is the reason that Trump was able to win North Carolina, a state that, by the way, did elect a blue, you know, blue in terms of getting its old Republican governor out this year. But there was active voter suppression in various precincts in North Carolina, particularly like on college campuses, like at North Carolina Central University, where they would wouldn't open enough polling stations for college students, right? And college students typically, particularly college students of color, but college students in general tend to vote more to the left. And so this was a concerted effort to roll back democratic access to the vote. And the Supreme Court has typically been a stopgap, and now they are not, and now there will be no check. We're seeing the assault on African-American civil rights at every level, and then we're just also seeing major assaults on principles that make democracy work so that big money that has no sort of transparency about who's providing it should not be allowed in a democracy. And when that kind of stuff happens, then folks who are working class and who are disproportionately people of color very much get harmed from that. We also have the GOP that, you know, they're deep into sort of climate change denial. But that affects people of color. Environmental racism, like the sort of massive flooding we saw earlier in the summer in Baton Rouge, in the sort of things that happened post-Katrina, the things that we see happen in Florida when there are huge hurricanes and huge natural disasters. And, and those are parts of the country where you have lots of Black folks living and working. If we don't get climate under control, then we're going to continue to see these once-in-a-hundred-year weather events happening very frequently. And then our most vulnerable populations are going to be the folks who are most harmed. Um, and so at every level of government, he's appointing people who simply deny the science. And then we have a court that is no stopgap uh, when people bring cases. Um, just as an example of the kind of scariness we're seeing that a, that a, that a more left-leaning court could stave off. In Texas today, they passed 
legislation saying that any time fetus is aborted, the fetus must either be cremated or buried, must have hmm. a funeral or a, a cremation. That is now Texas state law. Uh, and the only thing that had stopped the, you know, so there have been huge battles over reproductive justice in Texas in the last five years. And the courts have been huge in terms of trying to, to stand in the gap and make sure that this kind of march of conservatism didn't totally overtake women's reproductive rights. And so now this is law. So this is another way to humiliate women. And it's an added expense because if you're poor and you needed to terminate a pregnancy, now you also have to you be responsible for funeral costs or cremation costs. In every way that they can, they're trying to devastate communities of color and not just devastate them. It's one thing to sort of do the kind of rope things. It's another thing to also be engaged in a politics of humiliation, right, particularly around women and around the, the choices that they need to make about their bodies. And, and so all of these things are happening in the context of Trump, and they're being involved in the context of Trump, and there is no court that is going to be an advocate for the people. Well, damn, it's like if you're poor or middle class, there's no space for you in this new America. No, no. You know, and one last thing that, that I also think that your listeners really will find interesting. So I don't know if Trump is going to be able to get away with it, but the tax plan that Trump has proposed eliminates the head of household filing category. So if you're a single parent under Trump's proposed tax plan, you would only be able to file as a single person, and you wouldn't be able to take deductions for your dependents, for your children. What he proposes is that you can you can take more a larger standard deduction than we currently can take, something like $15,000. But based upon the, the math that I've read, if Trump is able to get his tax plan through and implement it in the ways that he wants, then we would see single parent families who are disproportionately run by black single mothers having an increase of a 10% at the, at the level of a 10, 10% increase in terms of the tax burden. And so if for anybody like me who grew up in a house with a single mom who was working class, income tax season actually helped you get over the gap in the middle of the year, helped you right. do some of the things that you needed to do for the family. And so we would see this means that, like, you will see in reductions in your income tax check if you got an income tax check at all because your amount of taxable income would go up about 10%. Um, and so even just something simple as that, that you're going to force folks who have, who are single parents trying to raise families to, to file at the same tax level as a person who's single with no dependents, is just absurd and is another way to just harm families trying to make it every day. And that's the kind of policies that he has on the table and that he basically has carte blanche at this point to, to pass and to run with. That's just depressing. <laughs> Let's just touch on a little bit of other things that, a few other things that could be as depressing, if not more. The Affordable sure. Care Act, student loan forgiveness and affordability. Yeah. Yeah. So what say you about this? And, oh, let me add one more thing. The Lilly sure. Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. Will sure. all of those things um, be rolled back? I don't know that there will be. I, I don't see that there will be an attack on Lily Ledbetter. I haven't read rumblings of that. It's hard to make a case that women should do the same kind of work and be paid less once that's actually been enshrined in the law. I think the larger point is whether we will see any significant enforcement of Lily Ledbetter because we've had a Fair Pay Act for women before. That was passed in the 1960s. Some ways is an attempt to try to force 
uh, the government to require companies to do better. I think that we should be very afraid about what's going to happen to the ACA. I've read a couple of different camps about this. I think that on the one hand, they are going to repeal it, if for no other reason they're going to do it symbolically. Um, I think that they will try to retain some provisions of the ACA because they're going to hurt a significant portion of the Republican base if they don't just you know, folks who are working class and elderly and who need access to good medical care. So I think that that the ACA is a symbolic attempt to roll back the kind of signature piece of legislation from the Obama era. And so I think that what we might see the GOP do is to to keep some parts of the ACA and repackage it as their own kind of health care plan that we don't get to call uh, Obamacare. And so I think that that is likely what will happen, but I absolutely think that in the interim, as they figure this out, I think we're going to see lots of folks who, who have been relying on and been, you know, blessed by having access to the ACA in these last few years uh, really be hurt. And I think young people are going to be hurt in particular. Young people are able to stay on their parents' insurance. Trump says he's going to keep that provision. But we also have an economy where young people can't quite are not able to really make their way into the, the kind of jobs economy in ways that are significant. So this is like a group that is going to be left behind. And it's interesting because this is also a group of young people who were very disillusioned about their choices in the selection season and who, and we saw the millennials saying, well, we don't really see a difference between Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I think unfortunately that they're going to find out that these kinds of policies are the place where you see the difference. The Trump campaign doesn't have any major plans to make college more affordable. And in fact, if you look at the kinds of folks that they're appointing to do education policy, these are people who favor privatization. And so right. when you look at why college costs have been rising so rapidly uh, at the state level, it is related to the kind of things that we're seeing happen in K-12 education, which is that it's all, we're basically saying now that education is not a public good, so the the government doesn't have any reason to have to fund this with tax, you know, with, with our tax dollars. And so they're just putting burden on individual families to figure out good schooling options for their kids at every level from K through 12 through college. And so that's going to affect college students because as states, individual states continue to defund public education at the government level, then that, that cost goes down to college kids. Um, and what Hillary Clinton had proposed to do was to force states to start increasing the amount of their budgets allocated to, to colleges and universities, which would have been an immediate drop in tuition costs and out-of-pocket costs for, for in-state students. And now we're not going to see any policies happen that way. This is Laura Rice, and you're listening to Full Body Frequency. My guest this episode is Dr. Brittany Cooper. And after this break, because we need one, <laughs> we'll continue the conversation <laughs> on the recent U.S. presidential election, and we'll turn our attention to the Electoral College and its function, and why, despite having won the popular vote, a clear mandate from U.S. citizens, Hillary Clinton isn't our president-elect. Full Body Frequency, we'll be right back. Is of thee, sweet land of liberty. Of thee, we bow to sing. Land of the pilgrim's pride, same land. 
Frequency is back, and I'm Laura Rice. To listen to this episode in its entirety, go to SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. While you're there, please leave your review of this episode. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Dr. Brittany Cooper, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. She's already given us an analysis of the recent U.S. presidential election and the potential impact of a Trump presidency. Before we circle back to a couple of those issues that we touched on earlier, let's break down the somewhat mysterious Electoral College. Point of clarity, the Electoral College is a process, not a place. (laughs) So (laughs) the Founding Fathers established it in the Constitution as a compromise between the election of the president by a vote in Congress and the election of a president by a popular vote by qualified citizens. So how exactly does the Electoral College work And what exactly is the compromise that it offers? Sure. The Electoral College is is in some ways a a really outdated system, but it it has a similar logic as to the reason why we have two houses of Congress, the Senate and the House of Representatives. So, um, So the House of Representatives is 
as kind of a, you know, it is elected every two years, two-year terms, and it's sort of the, the popular sentiment of the people. And the Senate, you know, was designed to sort of have terms every six years, and so not to be pulled into the whim and fancy of the people and to, you know, to kind of keep some kind of balance so that, that, that politics didn't totally determine how the government worked, but that the people felt like they could have a say. And so the Electoral College is similar in that the so what happens is that we have a popular election, uh, an election every year where we told the popular vote. And the popular vote literally means how many people voted, one person, one vote, and then who got, who got the majority of the votes. And so in the sheer numbers, Hillary Clinton leads in the popular vote by, at this point, 2.2 million people. So then the Electoral College was created for a couple of reasons. So there's the sort of standard political science answer that you get in school, and then there's the politics of it. So the standard political science answer is similar to the argument that is made about the two houses of Congress, that each state, based upon population, got a certain number of electors appointed who would meet at a point after the election uh, and cast their vote pretty much in tandem with the popular vote. So in an ideal system, the electors simply follow the will of the people. They vote how the people vote. So the electoral college vote should represent what the people have already said. But it was a stopgap measure so that if, for instance, the people elected a fascist or elected someone who said, you know, when I get into office, I'm going to dismantle the presidency because I want to be a king, then the electors would be able to stop that process by, in theory, casting their vote in a different direction than what the people had done as a way to protect democracy. That is the thing that we're told about the Electoral College and the reason why we need it, because the people can get caught up in a frenzy and, and become manipulated and make choices that are not good for the health of the republic. Well, the other part of this, though, is that the Electoral College, the way it's appointed, so, you know, we care about swing states and some states have more electors than other, it's determined by population. So it was also a way to say that any sort of small state wouldn't, like the sort of, the the civics lesson you would get is that any small state wouldn't be overridden by the sort of ideas or the political proclivities of a larger state. But in actuality, slavery has something to do with this. So part of the debate about creating the Electoral College was that, you know, many of you have heard of the three-fifths compromise where black people were, count, were counted as three-fifths of a person. And so in slaveholding states, they were allowed more electors because they were seen as representing an additional part of the population that couldn't vote, namely enslaved black people. And so this is why you see historically that there are these states that have many more, have many more electors than, uh, than they have based on the population, because it was designed to make sure that essentially northern progressives could not override the will of southern folks who wanted to keep slavery as an institution. So the Electoral College also enshrined a way to make sure that black people um, helped to contribute to the amount of electors that a state like, say, Georgia or Virginia had, um, even though they didn't have a vote. So it's very complicated. And now the, the narrative that we get is that the, you know, having the Electoral College means the large state like California, which is the most populous state, cannot overrun the will of the people, you know, the will of a state like North Dakota or a state like uh, Michigan or a state like, like Wisconsin. And so you have these sort of swing states. Um, so this is why, you know, these are the very complicated reasons why we have the Electoral College system. And unfortunately, in this moment, what's 
what is happening is that Hillary Clinton massively won the popular vote, but she won it in places like California that are typically more progressive. So she didn't manage to pull out the popular vote as far as we know in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan that have great a large amount of working class and rural white voters who tended to vote heavily for Trump. I don't think this is the triumph of democracy. Uh, this is clearly... One of the challenges in this moment is that Trump doesn't have a mandate, right? What we right. typically say when when a president has a significant portion of the popular vote is that they have a mandate, that the country has said, we want the kind of leadership you're providing. Trump is in office now with no mandate. He has the opposite of a mandate. He is in office with millions of people saying, we don't actually want you to be the president. And so the opposite, <laughs> the, re- the reverse thing has happened, right, which is that now these sort of small parochial communities, and I hesitate to say that because I don't like to like make rural places into parochial places since I come from a place like this, but we are seeing a kind of white parochialism determining what's about to happen with the government, uh, and that is a you know, testament to like the, the electoral college gone badly, badly wrong. In our lifetime, we've seen this before. I mean, this is what happened with the Gore campaign in 2000. He narrowly won the popular vote but he lost in the Electoral College because courts helped Florida to steal the election. So it's not like we've never seen this kind of chicanery happening um, in our political process, but we actually in our lifetime have never seen it happen on this massive of a scale. Uh, And that's the thing that's more deeply concerning. Very deeply concerning. And again, there are 538 Electoral College votes. 270 is the magic number. Trump received 308 electoral college votes versus Clinton's 232. So with that said, will recounting the popular vote in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania matter since the popular vote seems to hold no weight or little weight in this case? In order for it to matter, all of those states would have to be determined to have had fraudulent elections or inaccurate results, and then the electoral college votes would have to be taken away. If on some off chance that happens, it actually would impact. It actually would impact the election. It would shift the number of electoral college votes. I'm not sure how many votes that those all those places together have, but we would either be in a situation where Clinton could be the president or where neither candidate had gotten the requisite 270 votes. And so then the election would be tossed to the House of Representatives who would decide uh, the presidency. That's the way that our Constitution sets the process. But the thing about it is that independent political analysts and pollsters found that in all of those states, there were significant irregularities between the kind of exit poll data that they had and the paper vote totals that they saw to the tune of 7%, which is beyond the margin of error. So that means that they think that there were voters who said they voted for Clinton, and then when the paper ballots were totaled, it didn't match up with the exit polling data. And so we could either see that as people lying, but what they're saying is that even accounting for people having lied about who they voted for, the numbers are still deeply, so irregular that there, there is the need for a recount. So if, if, we got, if we win a recount in all these places, and Pennsylvania is going to be tougher, Wisconsin has already agreed to the, to the recount. Pennsylvania is tougher because they have a different process, and you have to have three people from every voting precinct in the state of Pennsylvania to go down by a certain day and say that they want the recount to occur. And there's an effort on the ground to make that happen in Pennsylvania. 
Um, they had to do it before the votes were certified, but I think that the votes were certified today. Now the process changes a bit. If, however, the recount does go forward, this is really important for democracy. We actually do need to see, like, you know, on the right forever, they've claimed that, you know, there's massive sort of voter fraud. Even Trump has been on Twitter <laughs> in the last several days saying that millions of people voted uh, illegally for Clinton. Right. So, you know, so, so look, so we actually do have an opportunity to have to test that out. I think that what we're going to find, I think that the election results, like, will be reversed in at least one state. I think that there's a reason that these folks sounded the alarm. And I think when you look at GNP suppression efforts, that I think anytime someone cries about how there's mass fraud, even though we don't have any, like, significant number of it historically documented, typically that means people are telling you how they move. And so I don't think the GOP is above, above its own kind of voter suppression um, tactics. Uh, and so I think that these recounts matter. I think they matter a great deal. And I'm very hopeful that we will just have, like, some kind of miracle and all the, you know, we'll find that all of these states, the vote totals were just deeply wrong um, and we'll see a flip. But even if we don't, I think we're going to get very important information about the inaccuracy of these votes. I mean, we're going to find out that some irregularities occurred, and that will allow us to make some laws and some provisions for this in future elections. And I think that's really important. It is really important. And a lot of people who say their votes don't count, there's a very specific way to apply that your vote does count. And let's talk about that for a minute, because you've been involved with the on the ground activism in Ferguson, Missouri, around the killing of Mike Brown. Applying the example of Ferguson and the functioning or dysfunctioning or misfunctioning of its local government prior to Brown's death was actually really crucial to explaining why voting matters, especially at the local level. Talk a little bit about that. Typically, when we talk about voting in the popular conscience, thinking about presidential elections, and in many ways, one of the things President Obama has shown us as we've had the rise of Black Lives Matter during his presidency is that there is actually limited power from the president. Now, I think sometimes he uses that as a cop-out, but I also think that it's been a really important civics lesson for us that the folks who determine our everyday quality of life, how we'll be policed and protected, how our schools will be funded, how our water systems will actually run, like like in the case of Flint, all of those folks are at state and local election levels. And so those are the places that we we wield real power. In the wake of Mike Brown being killed, we learned pretty much like that Ferguson was this kind of corrupt government that where they were 94% more likely if you were black to be stopped and to have traffic citations to have been stopped multiple times and to have, you know, massive amounts of fees in the local court system, because it was the way that this particular municipality right outside of St. Louis was funding the government. And so the people that make decisions about that and the judges who enforce those kinds of laws are very often in elected positions. Ferguson is one example of that, that like there was a massive voter registration effort after Michael Brown was killed. And so we did see some shifts in the city council. They were able to get, you know, a change in the mayor in Ferguson, particularly on the heels of the, like, Department of Justice report that exposed the, the overt levels of corruption. But we also saw the power of these kind of local elections in places like Chicago and Cleveland, where the DAs who refused to prosecute the cops that killed in Chicago, Laquan McDonald, 
And in Cleveland, Tamir Rice, there were district attorneys who refused to prosecute the cops that did those killings. And those communities organized and they were able to vote those DAs out and to put into office DAs who made explicit commitments around engaging the justice process far more fairly. There are real places where going into the voting booth makes a difference. And look, I also think that this election teaches us that it makes a difference at the presidential level as well. It was one thing for me to listen to young people talk about being disillusioned with Clinton and not trusting her and understanding very much the reasons for that. But it was deeply disheartening when I heard young people engaging in this narrative about how there was no difference between Clinton and Trump. Trump is a fascist. Clinton is a regular old politician of the sort that you just don't trust. But Mm. that's not new. What is new is Americans just lining up to elect an avowed fascist to the presidency. That's not something that we really see. So I try not to be one of those folks that like shames young people and says, vote because our ancestors died for your right to. Now, certainly that's a reason that compels me. And I understand young folks who are more distant from that history. That's not a reason that compels them. But recognizing that every time you go into the voting booth, you can actually determine how your schools get funded, whether schools get closed or don't. You can determine who puts landfills in your neighborhood. You can determine how you'll be policed uh, and whether folks are going to set up speed traps or engage in stop and frisk or do broken windows policing. You can actually have a say in those kind of things that affect your everyday quality of life by choosing who you're going to vote for for mayor, who you're going to head the school board, who's going to be in the governorship. Those things uh, actually really matter, even if you decide that you just can't pull the lever in a presidential election. Thank you, Brittany. That makes me feel so much better. And for those listeners who felt that all hope was lost, it is not. Local elections and national elections. This is Laura Rice, and you're listening to Full Body Frequency. My guest this show is Brittany Cooper. She is a Black feminist theorist who specializes in the study of Black women's intellectual history, hip-hop generation feminism, and race and gender representation in popular culture. And she recently appeared in Henry Louis Gates' two-part PBS presentation, Black in America Since MLK and Still I Rise. President Obama is wrapping up his final semester. I'm going to call it a semester in office. <laughs> and, when, <laughs> and when Full Body Frequency returns, Brittany Cooper will give him a mid-semester final grade. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. In 50 feet, turn left. Why are you driving so slowly? After a few drinks, I'm taking it slow. Well, you're not fooling the cop behind you. What? Get ready to pay in point one miles. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Full Body Frequency is back, and this is Laura Rice. And my guest today is Brittany Cooper, Ph.D., Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. Before the break, I shared that you'd be grading President Obama. Perhaps it's less of a mid-semester grade and more of a weighty progress report. And for those who believe that there is blind love being poured out upon our beloved President Obama, think again, 
as Brittany Cooper mentioned earlier, and then read her critiques of him. My recommendation, Mr. President, Stop Throwing Black People Under the Bus, which appeared in Ebony.com in 2013. One of the things that you've taken President Obama to task for is, and I quote you, his usual turn to respectability politics, which often finds him wagging his fingers at black people and telling them to be better, more involved parents, and to take responsibility for what ails black communities. However, in September 2015, you wrote an article entitled, Barack Obama just gave the most important racial justice speech of his presidency. Here's why. Over the weekend, the president gave an unprecedented speech addressing the plight of black women. So first, does that speech remain his most racial justice speech to date? And second, how have his actions or the lack thereof impacted the 2016 presidential election? We'll sweep back to some things that we've already spoken about. And again, his actions and not those of a clearly obstructionist and dysfunctional Congress during his second term. I'm gonna add one more thing to this, which is the third point. Given the way you've devoted a fair amount of space to a healthy and balanced critique of President Obama, what is his senior year grade to date? <laughs> wow, so a lot to think through. So look, I think that I'm still processing the grade that I would give the Obama presidency, but I think I'm going to err on the side of giving him a solid B, uh, in some cases a B plus, in some cases a B minus, but I'm going to give the overall presidency a solid B for a couple of reasons. So what I think if you look at these sort of standards about what makes great American presidents in terms of having signature piece of legislation, having putting the Americas in great standing in terms of their perception around the world, actually doing things to make quality of life better for American citizens. President Obama has actually been stellar. He saved the economy from a terrible economic circumstances when he first arrived in office. Perceptions of America prior to the, this most recent presidential election had really gone up around the world because President Obama is well-liked, even though he is still deeply invested in military approaches. He's been far more of a diplomat than George W. Bush was and even than President Bill Clinton was. In many cases, he's really tried to foster um, a sense of cooperation with countries, even doing things like opening, trying to reopen diplomatic relations with Cuba in a very slow fashion, but doing that really deliberately. We hadn't had those kind of relations with Cuba since 1959 or 1960. In all of those ways, President Obama has really been, I think, a wonderful president. I think the places where I disagree with him deeply, though, have to do with the fact that he has been so deeply invested in being, as he said, the president of all Americans, that he hasn't been an especially great president for black Americans. And I hate the logic that you know, where folks are like, well, he's not the president of black America. But, you know, it's the same sort of thing around all lives matter versus black lives matter. If you're not the president of black folks, then you're not actually the president of all Americans. Because black folks are Americans, too, and our concerns matter. So what President Obama very often does in our communities when he comes to speak at, you know, places like Morehouse or when he's invited to kind of black functions is he talks to us about Cousin Pookie. He always invokes <laughs> Cousin Pookie and the way that Cousin Pookie needs to, you know, get off the sofa and go and vote. Uh, and mm -hmm. he talks – and look – 
The other thing we really need to say about President Obama is that he has really deep daddy issues. And so President Obama has this narrative about how he wishes he had a father. He was, you know, he really has struggled with the fact that his father wasn't present. Um, And so very often his narrative in black communities is this sort of narrative about how black men need to step up and be fathers. And one of the things that statistically we know, based upon this really great study that came out of the Centers for Disease Control a couple of years ago, is that even though black families are you have lots of unwed black parents in black communities we actually statistically know that black fathers spend more time with their children even though they don't live in the house than white fathers who do live in the house spend with their children and you can look it up it's a centers for disease control study so the thing that we've got to stop saying is that because black moms and dads and heterosexual relationships aren't married uh, at great numbers that black fathers are absent that's actually not what the studies suggest not in this particular moment but we are deeply invested in black communities and this idea that we can take personal responsibility for many of the things that ail us and president obama comes to us and says those kinds of things to us he invokes this sort of deep investment that we have in respectability or responsibility and says you can do better and it's almost as though he's suggesting even though he doesn't he's never explicit it's sort of like and perhaps if you raised your children better they too could be barack and you know they could be sasha and malia obama right or you too could have this sort of great family structure like we have i think that that's a real disservice to black communities because the reality is that the way that our family structures are set up have everything to do with the way that Governments, both in the U.S. government, both in the present and in the past, has has intervened in our communities, locked brothers up far less than it takes for them to lock up white men, moved jobs out of our community so that it makes it hard for for black men and women to economically build marriages. You got to have resources and feel like you can actually build a life together. And sometimes that's the precursor to feeling like you have the emotional space to love somebody. We don't always take a structural approach to thinking about like the challenges that we face in our communities. And then so now we have elected this black president and we've given, he is the leader of the free world. And he still comes to us and says, the government can't do very much for you. Y'all still got to do it for yourself. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, if the government can't help us when there's a black president at the helm, right, then it never can and it never will. The way in which he condescends to black folks, I just, we have supported him and I think that we just deserve more. As a specific example, his signature racial justice initiative has been the My Brother's Keeper program, where he wanted to take young men in our communities and connect them to mentors and corporate internships and opportunities. There wasn't big government funding for this, but there was President Obama's imprimatur, which means a lot deeply resistant to including black girls in the program. So a group of us, over 1,500 women, got together and wrote a letter and said, black girls are in the community. They are in the same families as these black boys who are struggling. They go to the Mm -hmm. same failing schools. They have the same lack of access to resources. And so why do you think that you can have a racial justice initiative in which you only take care of the boys? Are the girls not black too? Are they not a part of the race? Are they not in need of justice? It took over a year of pushing. So when I wrote that piece about his Congressional Black Caucus speech in 2015, where he talked about black women and he used the the sort of contributions of black women as a way to think about the plight of all women in in a democracy, 
the thing that was interesting is I was so thankful for his speech, but also I knew that the reason that he got there was because a, a group of black women led by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a professor at UCLA uh, and Columbia, and lots of other black women had to push him. And, and I thought to myself, President Obama is fairly progressive. This is President Obama of the Lilly Ledbetter Act. This is President Obama who lives in the White House with four black women who are fabulous and wonderful. And this president, who knows all that he knows, still thought that black boys had it worse than black girls and that if he was going to help black people, he could just do that by just helping little black boys. And that's egregious a lot of labor to get him to, to shift. So yes, so I think, look, there's qualifications to be a good American president, and he has blown those qualifications and accomplishments out of the water, and I think he deserves all the credit for that. And I say that with a sort of, like, a little bit of irony, right? Because, like, one of the qualifications to be a great American president is that you're a war hawk and that you'll do terrible things to people all around the world in the name of preserving American power. And he has shown his willingness to do that as well, including, like, his use of drone warfare, just for instance. So when I say that he has done a great job at the American presidency, I say that with full acknowledgement that being the American president is to engage in acts that, frankly, in many cases, I think are immoral, but I know are, are demands of the job that he's put in office to do. But when it comes to representing the people who got him there, and 96% of black women voters voted for President Obama in 2012, and we were the largest single demographic of any voting group in the country in 2012. Um, when, you know, when he was facing a battle for Mitt Romney. So it is black women surge voters who made sure that he had that second term in office. And the fact that he has not, for instance, tried to make sure that Asada Shakur would be okay, thought about pardoning Mumia Abu-Jamal, right? Um, you know, granted uh, clemency to more people who have been harmed by the war on drugs. There are so many things that he could have done. But any number of these things, right, that would have been at least of symbolic importance to black communities. He has not done any of these things. And black folks are the reason that he managed to have two terms in office. Uh, that is when he falls really far down the scale for me. And so I'd give him a B on the overall presidency. I think that he's really been at C minus level or less. Uh, when it comes to his writing for black communities. And that's hard to say. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that, like, I love black people. And loving black people does not just mean dressing up in a fancy suit and getting the position and then forgetting who got you there. When you love black people, then you do stuff for black people. And the president has been so invested in making sure that his perception is not, perception of him is that he's not too black of a president, that he only shows up for us in deeply symbolic moments. He comes to the funeral in Charleston, he sings Amazing Grace, and he gives a wonderful eulogy. But I need you to back that up with policy. I need you to demilitarize these police forces. I need you to demand that there be federal civil rights cases brought against a lot of these cops who are murdering black folks and local municipalities won't do anything about it. Like, those are things he could have done to put his money where his mouth very much was, right? Uh, and he didn't do it. And we can say that and still say, we love Barack, we love Michelle, they're gorgeous. They have really elevated America in these eight years in multiple ways. And I both feel that and also feel like we deserved more and he could have given us more. You're listening to Full Body Frequency, and I'm Laura Rice. Assistant Rutgers University professor, crunk feminist, and activist Brittany Cooper is my guest. So, Brittany, let me ask you this. 
If journalist and anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, political mm-hmm. activist and philanthropist Fannie Lou Hamer, and lawyer and women's rights movement leader Bella Abzug were alive today, would they be crunk feminists? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Especially Sister Ida. I think we channel her a whole lot. Back in the day, the, the brothers that worked with Ida B. Wells said she was a bull in a china shop. She just came charging through and she really took no prisoners. Fannie Lou Hamer is interesting, right? Because she also took no prisoners. She was very direct. But, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, I had an opportunity some years ago to listen to some audio of her at Black Women's Archive in D.C. at the National Council of Negro Women uh, National Archives. And she told these sort of body jokes, you know, really inappropriate sort of sexually charged jokes and had this like boisterous kind of laughter. That is the thing that I most am thankful for for Fannie Lou Hamer is that despite her sort of hearing political critique, right? I mean, her clear commitment to a kind of radical politics around both the Democratic Party and around Black people and civil rights, she also just found great space for joy. And I find that same thing to be true with Ida B. Wells. We know Ida B. Wells, the anti-lynching activist who would roll into cities and interview journalists and, and call out white women who were having sex with Black men and then accusing them of, like, rape when they got caught, which is, like, how Ida B. Wells' newspaper got burnt to the ground. But I also know the Ida B. Wells of her Memphis diary, which anybody can purchase a copy of. Ida B. Wells, like, had a shopping habit and sometimes couldn't pay her rent because she liked pretty dresses. <laughs> she likes pretty dresses, right? And Ida B. Wells also always had a dude. And so she would just be running these dudes, and she had this reputation for being a flirt. She had lots of suitors and beaus who would come keep company and have tea with her in the parlor. And there was all kinds of drama going on in her 20s. And Ida B. Wells didn't you know, really get married until her 30s because she was busy running around trying to stop lynchings and in the meanwhile having a very sort of active social life. And so those are the kind of components, I think, of what it means to be a crunk feminist, that we were really clear, right, about the way that we want to see the world change, that we want the world to be better for Black folks, queer and trans, straight, women, men, gender nonconforming. We want a world in which Black folks any folk of color have a fighting chance to live out their sort of full humanity. But we know that that fight is never, we're going to always have that fight. Every generation of black folks in this country has had that fight. That won't change with us. It's about figuring out how to have the fight in this generation and have political clarity about the world we want to build. And at the same time, have fun. At the same time, like, have a love life, have a shopping habit. Kanye West is a single black female addicted to retail. Ida B. Wells was a single black female addicted to retail, right? Knowing that part of the story too, and knowing that part of this is about like that the revolution we're fighting for is that revolution, our ability to be our full human selves, not to just be archetypes of activists who all we do all day is fight, but who folks recognize that that what we're fighting for is the right to have some joy, right? And the right to have that joy not be disrupted because we're struggling every day trying to make it. Holding all of those things in tension is really a sort of crunk feminist ethos. That's how we came to calling ourselves that because we both were like, we want to dismantle patriarchy, right? And we want a world where women get to be fully who they're supposed to be. But we also want to go to the club and shake our asses, right? And have a good time. And we don't want to give up the one in pursuit of the other. And so, you know, what does it look like to blend them all together? And so when I look at these historical women, I'm deeply obsessed with their personal lives. Like, 
Fannie Lou Hamer was more, you know, like her husband was very supportive. And so Fannie Lou Hamer talked about how she had a husband who would like do the children's hair, give the baby girls a ponytail and things like that. How he really supported her in her right to go out and fight. And Ida B. Wells talked about the same thing with her husband encouraged her when she felt like she should be home taking care of the kids. Him and the kids were like, you got to do it. We need you out here fighting in the world. And so I'm really obsessed with like, how did these powerful women, what did it look like for them to have personal and intimate lives? And what kind of partners and what kind of family lives did they have so that they could both do their work, but also come home to something and somebody. So now that said, And based on your knowledge and obsession with these women's personal lives, which one of these factivists would take down Ann Coulter and stick her with safety pins? (laughs) You know what? They would take so many of them would take her down, though, and they would just take her down in different ways. So, like... So Ida would, you know, I mean, Ida was slash and burn with that pen. I mean, she was rough. But, you know, Mary Church Terrell is like a person that I also really love because Mary Church Terrell was like, the queen of shade. In my new book, I have a book coming out in May called Beyond Respectability. And I talk about this moment where Mary Church Terrell, who was like the president of the National Association of Colored Women in the early 20th century and a peace activist and so many other things, but also like the height of like Washington, D.C. Black respectability in the early 20th century. And so she goes to this conference abroad and she's real light-skinned, so people think she's white. And so they know that there's a black woman from America coming to talk to conference. And so they, since she's American, they keep going up to her and saying, where's the negress? You know, do you know who the negress is? And, you know, she's the negress. So she gets up, gives this great talk. She gives the talk in French and German, right? And then she does a big reveal kind of in the middle of it and goes like, if this was 50 years ago, my people would have been enslaved and I wouldn't be able to stand here before you and show out like a boss. You know, it's sort of the way she handled it. (laughs) And so I think that she wouldn't have this kind of shady, this kind of exquisite shade in her approach. She's a great writer. And I think that they would just come for Anne, but in in all of the ways that black women are magic, right? With both shade and with the one-two punch, and with the by Felicia, I think that you would just see all of it in all of these ladies. And I think we're seeing it today. I mean, I think we have reincarnations of that kind of black girl magic in massive amounts on the internet these days. And I'm truly thankful for it. There's great historical precedent for it. So. In your 2012 post entitled Big Girls Need Love 2, Dating While Fat and Feminist, which was later included as a chapter in the 2015 publication of the book Gender, Sex, and Politics in the Streets and Between the Sheets in the 21st Century. You lament about your experiences of dating while fat. Your experience, let's say, were less than satisfying have ramped up body positivity and fat acceptance movements impacted your perspective and your experience? And has your dating life, that as a a black woman, big girl, activist, feminist, changed since that post? And if so, how? Yeah, you know, thanks for that question. Um, So yeah, you know, my my perception has changed. I mean, look, I'm even fatter now than I was when I wrote that post. So I think that that's one thing to say. Uh, and, you know, and um, because this is a journey and one in which, you know, I'm sort of deeply committed to like embracing my body at every size and, and always trying to make sure that in the end, like that I'm healthy, but that I'm not trying to be a twig or whatever. So in that moment, it was a particularly rough dating moment where it felt like options were really limited. And look, I think that, we're, we're in a moment where 
Options are limited for many uh, women of color who are people of size because men, you know, particularly in straight dating, men are very much, you know, conditioned to desire within a really limited range of what is sexy and what is beautiful. And so there have been two saving graces in my life um, since I wrote that post. One is that I was like chopping it up with my a group of homegirls I have who are called the Pleasure Ninjas. And these are a group of black lady professors, black feminist chicks who write about sex and pleasure um, as part of the academic work that we do and the political work that we do. And I was like, you know, I hate online dating because people, dudes are always online talking about, well, we don't like chicks that look like Monique. And one of my homegirls said, oh, one of my students just did a paper about um, plus size dating, like uh, plus size online dating sites, which I had never heard of, like BBW sites or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that has been my saving grace. I went like right then that day, set up a profile on a BBW site, and I met like a lovely dude that way. That's been good. It made me feel like I had more options. I was able to get away from some of the fat shaming. Um, and so I was able to kind of find a place where the way that I choose to live in my body was fully accepted, and I'm very thankful for that. I do feel like there are somewhat some more options uh, than what I had before. The other thing that happens, though, is that I, that these pleasure ninjas and some of my other homegirls are also just the kind of chicks that are that because they are really kind of clear about who they are as sexual beings, both clear and straight, just straight up flirt with me. Like these are my homegirls. These are not these are not girls that I'm sleeping with. They just are very body positive and body affirming. And so they will just be like, girl, your ass looks fat in this dress which actually matters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it matters to have people, whoever they are, to tell you that you're desirable and that you look really fly. Um and so You know, so I think that my story of dating in this particular moment of my life is that I figured out that the kind of affirmation that we need can come from multiple places, um, and that we also just have to be a bit more expansive in the way we think about things. And that doesn't mean that I don't think dating is tough. And, like, I never want to be one of those people where when dating is going well, then I'm just seeing people being like, well, if you just do this, then, you know, (laughs) you know, I hate when people do that. Uh, Mm. And so, and I don't really think about it that way. I think, like... Right now, I feel feel better about my options, but I also still think it's really hard. Like, I'll give an example. I was um, I was somewhere doing like on the set of somebody's TV show recently, and I met this kind of this rapper dude. And when he came to sit down, he was like with me and a couple of my homegirls who are skinnier and have more traditionally beautiful bodies. And he just literally looked over me, like he literally just did not pay attention to me. It was similar to you know, the kind of stories that I've told on the blog, right, about being overlooked in a crowd of people because I'm the fattest girl there. And so that happened recently. And I noticed it. You know, he didn't look me in the eye. He pretty much didn't acknowledge that I even existed. And so I want to say, like, that does happen. And it was it was really nice to know that even though he didn't look and I wasn't particularly invested in him looking, that there was some, there's somebody in my life who does look. But in the moments when you don't have that, like, you know, figuring out how to navigate that can be really, really hard. And it's about having this kind of internal fortitude where you just be like, I'm fine anyway, though, but I really am dope, though. And, like, you do have to kind of have this moxie about it because there are all these things in the world where people will try to disaffirm the right to take up space as a person of size, as a fat person, you know, or folks want you to be fat but quiet, right? They want you to be fat but not fabulous. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not here for any of that, right? I think that part of what it means to politically be accepting of a person of size is take up all the space that you need and be unapologetic about your right to do so. Amen. Thank you. So, Brittany, what's yeah. next for you? Um, what's next is uh, three book projects on tap in 2017. So uh, the Crunch Feminist Collective will be re- releasing a co-edited volume in January with the Feminist Press. It's called the Crunk Feminist Collection. You can Google it. It's available for pre-order. In May, I'm putting out a book called Beyond Respectability, The Intellectual Thought of Race Women. And that's a book that's really rooted in my academic research and is about women like Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Sorrell and Anna Julia Cooper and all these sort of fabulous 19th century black women who I'm just fascinated with and obsessed with. And then next fall, I am scheduled to put out a book tentatively titled uh, Never Scared, One Black Feminist Take on what is it? Not backing up, not giving in, and not backing down. So uh, that should be out with St. Martin's Press in September. And it's just kind of more of the things we've been doing today, kind of fun Black feminist commentary about politics and relationships. So uh, those are the projects. Well, that's exciting. And I can't wait to get my hands on those books for sure. So Dr. Brittany yeah. Cooper, thanks so much for joining Full Body Frequency today. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Brittany Cooper and the important work she's doing around reinvigorating contemporary scholarly and popular conversations about black feminism, visit BrittanyCooper.com. To join in the conversation, follow her on Twitter at Professor Crunk. Until next time, tune into your own full body frequency where large is luscious living. <laughs>